It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 at the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. Multiple ways you can interact with us here on the program. 201-939-4513. That is option number one. You can also find us on Twitter. Hashtag Giants Chat. And a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app. Podcast platforms everywhere and at Giants.com slash podcast. So we're going to continue to preview and look ahead to the upcoming draft. Two classes that will break down today. We'll have Auburn as well as Baylor on the docket. We'll get to that in a little bit. But before we delve into some more college prospects, Paul, what we didn't talk about on yesterday's program is the Giants added an offensive lineman. And then on top of that yesterday, which is where I want to start, we learned that Jabril Peppers is now going to be joining the New England Patriots. So he's going to be reuniting with Joe Judge in New England. Can't say that this was necessarily a surprise. Peppers was a free agent. He was free to go to wherever he wanted. And the Giants obviously have other options at the safety position, even though they also did part ways with Logan Ryan. But Jabril Peppers will be moving on, and he is going to be heading to Bill Belichick land with the New England Patriots next season. Well, remember, Joe Judge has gone back to the Patriots coaching staff, and Peppers was a co-captain here, a guy who can also play special teams. We know he's uh, valuable in the kick return game. And Joe Judge did like him a lot. So I'm sure sure he gave Bill Belichick a very healthy reference Uh, And uh, as a result, uh, Peppers winds up finding himself there. I wish him nothing but the best. Local guy, hometown guy here with the Giants. Very well thought of, really good guy, great attitude, great teammate. Always had his motor and his high energy going. Took losses very hard. He's one of those guys who really took a loss right right to his gut. He really hated to lose. And, you know, I, I love those kinds of guys on my team. But uh, coming off of the, uh, the injury, uh, we wish him all the best for sure. And I will tell you this, Lance. Uh, I mentioned this on my Twitter page when Logan Ryan was set free. And now that Peppers has been set free, you think of the fact that basically two-thirds of the Giants' starting three-safety package are gone. McKinney is still here. Uh, Love, who has done some of that work, is still here. But the other two starters in the three-safety package uh, have gone elsewhere. I have to believe that that does impact the need quotient when you talk about Hamilton coming out of Notre Dame. And whether or not, you know, you want to talk about uh, all the other factors, I do think the need value certainly as part of that equation could give you a logical path to start considering him a little bit more than maybe you would have beforehand. A lot also depends on what Don Martindale's plans are without on a the doubt. back end of the defense, right? Without a I doubt. Mean, just because Patrick Graham utilized the three safeties doesn't mean that Martindale necessarily is going to follow a similar game plan. So I think that, to me, is the bigger indication, Paul, as opposed to based on what they utilized last season. But there's no doubt about it. There's room to add another safety. I'm not going to dispute that. But I think it's more a matter of how much does Don Martindale value in additional safety as opposed to just working with McKinney and Love there and saying, okay, I think we're fine and we'll utilize other corners. 
when we want to bring the extra defensive back on the field. So that, I think, is still a looming question mark. If he values an extra safety, then, for example, to your point, maybe utilizing one of your top 10 picks on that position warrants a selection. You know, if Lance, his answer is no, then I would say I think the roster as is may be able to fill his needs. Yeah, well, and I think, well, clearly at this point, they have two guys who are capable starting safeties in the league, right? We would both agree that Love can be a starting safety in this league. He's, he's certainly done it before, so I, I think that's fine. They will need a number three. Now, what we don't know, neither you nor I have had an opportunity to, to chat with Wick Martindale about his philosophies. It's not only about does he want to use a three-safety package as one of his core defenses, but the other question becomes, let's say he doesn't. Who does he view as his third safety? Does he think that Aaron Robinson is his third safety? You'll recall that there was a lot of conversation last year with that coaching staff about how they viewed Robinson as a guy who could play either position. He could play corner. He could play safety. They also liked him in the slot, which he saw some time there. Where is Aaron Robinson's future? If if, if Wink thinks that Robinson is going to be a much better safety than a slot or a corner, well, then he's the third safety, and then that changes the need component altogether again. Yeah, because the third defensive back maybe is a good way to put it, Paul, as opposed to the third safety. Who does he utilize in that spot? And is that mainly a slot guy? Is it a guy that he wants to play deeper down the field? All of those factors, I think, add to this equation that we're talking about. And I'm not saying that you can't go wrong with respect to bringing in an extra defensive back with one of your top picks. But I would think that if you're going to utilize the fifth or the seventh overall pick on a defensive back, you're going to want to get that guy on the field more often than not in year one, mm-hmm. especially if you're utilizing that type of high collateral. I would agree. Okay, So I would that, agree. to me, once again, falls back on the defensive coordinator and how he's going to utilize personnel. So that's at least interesting based on now the absence of Logan Ryan and Jabril Peppers. You know what's funny, yeah. Lance? Uh, we we are really in the dark here because we've been unable to talk to either of the coordinators. We haven't talked to Kafka. We haven't talked to Martindale. We still don't even know 100% who's going to call the plays on offense. I mean, there's a lot of thought that they And that may will, not be but, revealed, Paul. I didn't mean to cut you off until no, right before the season. It may not. It may not. And so, you know, there are things that, that are a mystery to all of us. And they're very important things the philosophy of what these coordinators want to do and how they wish to deploy their players. And, you know, John has mentioned to me before, he's like, well, you can look at what the Ravens did. Well, yes, to some degree you can. But part of that was also what Wink felt he had on the roster. We, we both know this, that, you know, you get some coordinators who say, well, this is my system, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to use those guys the way I want to use them regardless then there are those other coaches who say, okay, wait a minute. I don't have guys who can do what I do, so I'm going to have to massage what I do to get the best out of who's here. So just because Wink Martindale did a certain uh, scheme in, in Baltimore, you would think that a lot of that will translate here, but maybe not all of it. And, and could there be a significant piece to his secondary in particular, because I, I don't think he's going to change his front seven. His front seven is how he made his bread and butter. He will disguise a 
ton of stuff, mugging linebackers left and right in his front seven. That is his core base belief, and I don't see him coming off of that one iota. But could he come off of some of his secondary schemes? Potentially, depending upon what he thinks the Giants have on the shelf. Well, and he went through quite the challenge last season when most of his secondary players got yeah. hurt, right? Mm-hmm. So, and if gave anybody up a lot of big plays, too, because the, he was uh, hurting on the depth chart. 100%. So, if anybody understands the importance of adjusting on the fly, I think it would be him. Plus, you brought up Baltimore. Remember, he was also the defensive coordinator in Denver for one year in mm-hmm. 2010. I know that we're pretty far removed from those days, but... Maybe he picked something back up from what he utilized in Denver because he certainly didn't have the same personnel in Denver, right, that he did in Baltimore. No. So, I mean, I think there's a big enough resume to say, yes, Baltimore could indicate some, but whenever you see a defensive coordinator change teams, the things that he ran with the previous team, especially if he's good at realizing, hey, we had this strength, so therefore we leaned on that. That doesn't mean that we can lean on that in my new team. I think most coordinators understand that. Patrick Graham would fall under that category and anybody else that has come through the Giants' hallways on the defensive side of the ball. So Baltimore, I wouldn't necessarily lean on that heavily until we really get a good idea of what the defensive personnel is going to look like based on, of course, what they do in the draft. Now, the other transaction that I wanted to get to before we start to move along to college prospects is Max Garcia was signed by the Giants, an additional offensive lineman, Mm -hmm. a vet. He's been with a few teams. Last three seasons was with Arizona. He has experience at both guard spots, mainly a few opportunities at center. But Paul, here's another move for the sake of depth. I mean, clearly they've added a number of offensive linemen. You want these guys to compete to determine exactly who is going to walk away with a starting job. But Garcia, the appeal is, listen, if he wins a backup job or if he's lucky enough to win a starting job, but if he's going to be a backup, you've got to be somebody that can be reliable to slide in at multiple positions, and at least he has the experience there. There's no doubt about that. He's one of those versatile interior offensive linemen. I think the thing that we we notice right away when you look at his track record is that he's had had the better part of three seasons as a starter during his, what, seven or eight years in the National Football League. You go back to his time in Denver. He was on that Broncos uh, Super Bowl winning team. Uh, You know, when he came in as a rookie, although he didn't start in the Super Bowl, he did make some starts that season and did see some snaps. So that's kind of nice that he had some of that experience under his belt. Uh, And then you also do see that there were other seasons where he was a primary starter. So those are good things. You're talking about a guy who's 30 years old. All right, so he's not over the hill. Offensive linemen, they're in their prime at 30 years old. Come on, you you know that as well as I do, Lance. Some of these guys, they're like Methuselah. They'll play forever. So, you know, 30 is is right in his prime. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the versatility. Well, he's played both guard spots, and he's played some center. So it's all good. Now, I don't want to put too much stock in hearing that he was a Pro Bowl alternate with the Cardinals last year. And, and, and basically the reason for that is we both know that the Pro Bowl is kind of a wishy-washy honor. I, I don't want to belittle it because any guy who gets it, good. I congratulate you. I salute you for getting it. But that honor doesn't necessarily automatically, to me, mean that you're a top-caliber player. I, I think there's a lot that goes into that that does not necessarily reflect your skills or tape on the field. And with all due respect, you and I both know that we've seen some players make it to the Pro Bowl 
uh, or for that matter, be high on the alternate list simply because of what, what voting said as opposed to what their play said. Well, and in order for them to make it as an alternate, it means somebody else dropped out, too. So I think you yeah. got to at least look at it from that standpoint. And how many guys tend to drop out towards the end of the season, Paul, because their teams were eliminated from the playoffs, they're unhappy, they want to nurse an injury. There's been a high volume of guys. There were a lot of changes on that roster mm-hmm. leading up to this year's game. So yeah. I think that's only, another reason. My only point is to like pump the brakes here. I get the fact that the guy has started some and he's got experience and he's been on a winning team. Those are all good things. It just means to me he is a very realistic competitor for a potential starting job. I don't automatically slot him in and give him one. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, I mean, I go back to the Giants right now are in a position they need options, Paul. They need guys to compete. They need bodies. Also, correct, with the rate of injury last year and some of these guys that they're banking on who may come back but still have question marks, it's more of a reason why you can't go in saying, okay, Lemieux and Gates are fine and everything's going to be great. You want to be prepared that, God forbid, one of those two or both are not options to start the season that you're at least in a position to say, hey, we could bring in a guy who has starting experience, who's been in a variety of offenses, and we believe he could hold up. So I think that's the philosophy, how the Giants are going about their business. He had two seasons where he started all 16 games in 16 and 17 with Denver at left guard. And then last year, he appeared in 15 games. He started 11. So three of his seasons, going back to 2015, he was a reliable starter. Outside of those seasons, he was a guy that appeared in games, but he wasn't necessarily somebody that was going to be a game-in, week-in, week-out starter. But you throw him in there, John Feliciano, you've got now two guys that have versatility at center and guard, and let the battle play out and let's see what happens during the course of training camp I don't think that's necessarily a bad position to be in and the other thing that we've been emphasizing Paul regardless of them bringing in a handful of offensive linemen through free agency to me it doesn't take away still the needed right tackle Mm -hmm. and the opportunity to address that in the draft this is far from a finished product this offensive line you could go out and sign 25 linemen okay between guys who are undrafted free agents and a few veterans. That still doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity or a need to bring in somebody through the draft. I want to make that crystal clear. I don't think anybody in the Giants front office nor anybody that covers this team very closely is saying, hey, everything's finished. They brought in three or four offensive linemen. They're ready to go week one because I think that's extremely far from the truth. Well, I think if uh, people were to listen to the archive of yesterday's program, we had Michael Eisen on, the senior writer here at Giants.com, and and he was quoting, reading off of his notes, that Brian Dable pretty much said flat out, they are looking for a starting right tackle. So we know that one-fifth of the the offensive line, at least one-fifth, is something that they're looking to fill. So that's obvious. We all know it. And the Giants have admitted that. Now, what I tried to tell people the other day on the program, I don't, I think it was me and Jeff, um, you're going to take nine, in all likelihood, nine offensive linemen onto your 53 for week one. Well, let's not forget, okay? Even once the Giants get that starting right tackle, whoever that turns out to be in the draft, well, you've got competition, but then you've also got to figure out, okay, there's going to be a loser at probably – one of the guard spots, you would like to think that that guy's your number six. But then you still need to fill out seven, eight, and nine. 
And the idea is that seven, eight, nine aren't guys that you just picked off of the Kmart shelf. You'd like to believe that seven, eight, nine will be better than what you put on the field last year when you were forced to go like 13 deep on your offensive line. Yeah. So that's why this is all good. You know, this is all good. Even a guy like Matt Gono, think about this for a second. He was tendered a second-round contract before last season by the Falcons. An organization does not tender a guy a second-round contract unless they believe he has some benefit to him. They've got to they've see that or they're not doing it. People don't give out second-round tenders just to do it. So I believe Matt Gano has something to offer, and I suspect at the very least he's going to be a competent swing tackle. I believe that. Now, he's coming off a year of injury, so you know where does his health play into this equation? But you'd have to say he's going to be an upgrade, and, and you'd like to believe that well, however that guard spot works out, whether Lemieux comes back and wins it, whether Gates come back, comes back and maybe wins the job there because they want Feliciano to be the starting center, you'd like to believe for sure that if those guys are healthy enough, they're upgrades over the backups you had last year, right? Absolutely. Well, a bunch of the guys you just named, I mean, just think about it. You know, Garcia, Gates, I'll throw in Matt Paert. I mean, he's another guy. We don't know his status because he got hurt very late in the season. But all of those players that we're naming, let's say they don't win starting jobs, that means everybody who's delegated to be a backup, Paul, will be bringing starting experience with them to the second line so that in the event you lose somebody for a few games or, God forbid, you lose somebody for the season, you're bringing not necessarily somebody in who is an unknown, maybe a rookie who never has tasted the NFL or somebody that's been a veteran backup who has maybe three or four starts. You're bringing in a guy that very well has maybe 15 starts on their resume or 10 starts on their resume. So mm -hmm. I think that's a good position to be in. Whenever guys who started for you last year become backups, that's a good position to be in. Your insurance policy has experience, but you've at least gone about your business to upgrade. And we'll certainly get more into that as we move forward here with respect to the dynamics of the Giants' offensive line. But Max Garcia, the latest addition, and Jabril Peppers, they lose in the secondary to the New England Patriots. So we're going to now continue our preview of the 2022 NFL Draft in the first school is Auburn up today. And to break down the Auburn Tigers, we are joined by a former Giants quarterback who serves as the Auburn radio analyst, and that is none other than Stan White. Stan, you got Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino here on Giants.com. Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope all is well. How are things on your end? Things are great, Lance and Paul. Appreciate you guys having me, and uh, looking forward to, uh, to this draft and see if some of these Auburn Tigers are, are going to go somewhere. Absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the program. And let's start with the secondary because I think Roger McCreary is the guy that tops the list for most when it comes to Auburn prospects. Clearly a guy that has, I think, established himself entering this draft as one of the best man press corners who really, you could argue, became sort of a shutdown guy this past season. Where would you say he's made the biggest stride, Stan, in his development over the course of his Auburn tenure? I think the physicality part of it. I mean, he's not the biggest stature guy uh, out there. And, and, and But what I saw the last uh, year, year and a half, going on two years now, is, is the guy just always seems to be around the football. Uh, he really turned into that lockdown corner like you talked about. And he plays 
bigger than his physical stature is. Uh, he's not one of those guys that stands six one, six two, and you know he's not long, but he's rangy if that makes sense. Uh, and so uh, this is a guy that that uh, he's really good uh, on the perimeter uh, in open field tackling, but he's also that really good cover guy. And and uh, you know going against some of the top. Uh, Top offenses in in the country uh, late in the year against Alabama, against Georgia. I mean, he was uh, he was that guy that you really put on the best the best weapon out, outside for the other team, and and he really did a good job. Stan, when I look at his measurables at at five eleven one ninety, at least that's what I have in front of me, and we talk about his physicality. To me, that screams slot in the NFL. Am I wrong? I, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think he, he probably will enter the NFL maybe as that slot fifth guy. Uh, and a lot of times nowadays you're going to have four or five DBs on the on the field 90% of the time just the way offenses are. So, like you said, I think he's good. He's good at, uh, at being aggressive uh, on the outside with the run game, but he also has that physicality that can play that slot guy. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's not a guy – you know, he's not a 4-3 uh, type of guy, uh, a cornerback, which there's not a lot of those, obviously. But uh, but he can he can run with the outside guys. But like you said, he may transition to a slot and kind of be one of those hybrid guys that can play either or uh, in a defense. Stan, the other thing that jumps out is it looks like he stayed relatively healthy over the course of his career. I know COVID obviously has thrown a big curveball the way of college football. But if you look at his box scores each and every season – he was available, and he stayed on the field. How appealing is that, and what does that say about his frame as he now transitions to the NFL? Well, I, I, think, that, I think you hit, hit it on the head right there. The biggest thing is his durability. You know, he, when, when it's game time, he's there. He's ready. And so I think the reliability and durability is one of the things that's a feather in his cap, so to speak. I mean, he's just a guy that doesn't miss much time. Uh, you know, everybody gets banged up, and, you know, obviously there's a difference in being injured and hurt. And, and this is a guy, when, when he puts on the helmet in this game time, he's ready to go. And so having that durability and, and a coach's trust that he's going to be ready week in and week out uh, is big in the NFL. Let me ask you about Zacoby McLean because I'm having trouble placing him, Stan. Is he going to be an inside backer at a 3-4 or is he going to be an outside backer in a 4-3? You know, that, that's a good question. Uh, I think he's an undersized backer, obviously. Uh, led the team and one of the, one of the leaders in the SEC in tackles over the last couple of years. He has the speed uh, to be able to play outside. Uh, the one thing that's going to be the, that's going to be interesting to see how he transitions is, is being able to cover uh, if he plays outside. Um, you know, I think he was listed about 210, maybe 212 uh, times. Uh, and then and he may be – he may put on some weight uh, since the season was over. But he was a guy – that, that played as a smaller type of linebacker. But one thing about Zacoby, and, and, and this you'll see if, if, you, if you get a chance to watch him at the next level, this is a guy that puts his head in there, and, will, and he, is a, he plays at 245 pounds, if that makes sense. Uh, I mean, this is a guy that really is fearless. Um, he has the speed, the athletic ability, and he's a hole plugger now. I mean, he, is, he will fill a hole in a heartbeat. Uh, now we know getting to the NFL transition is obviously bigger, faster backs, uh, but you know, he's played at a high college level against top 10 opponents week in and week out in the SEC. So that's a good question. I, I think he's going to have to be a scheme guy. Whoever gets him has to slot him either being an outside guy uh, that, can, that can fill a hole in the outside running east and west, so to speak, or if he's going to be inside, 
I don't know if he can play every single down as an inside guy, unless he puts on, you know, 12, 15, 20 pounds. But, but no doubt about it, this guy's got the heart, the ability, uh, and, and he's got the intangibles to play the game. It's just the size is going to be the question on him. We're talking with Stan White, Auburn radio analyst, former Giants quarterback. Stan, you brought up questions about could he cover. One of the things that obviously jumps off his resume is that pick six he had against Alabama in 2019. I believe it was a 100-yard run back, a huge play. But did you see enough flashes of that during the course of his career? And how much did they tell him, hey, we want you to drop back into coverage, and they utilized him that way? Yeah, that, that was not – in fact, he was covering a back in the, in the flat on the goal line on that one. In fact, he was covering um, – uh, his name eludes me – Pittsburgh Steelers, rookie, uh, last year on that particular play uh, for Alabama. Uh, so, yeah, he just wasn't asked to get into, get into space and cover a whole lot. He wasn't asked to drop into a zone as much. He was, he was that run filler. I mean, he was a guy – he was a hole filler. And so that's going to be the – can he transition to that? I think he can. He has the speed. I mean, he went 103 yards, uh, you know, after that interception. So, you know, and, and there was not like there was an angle. I mean, the, the other players had a chance to catch him, you know, even including the running back. And, and so uh, he had a pretty good year last year, which <laughs> year in the NFL. So uh, I think he has that ability to transition. It's, it's just can he do it? And I think they will work with him. Whomever he goes to, I think, will work with him and, and be able to teach him that. There's one other player, Stan, that I'm very curious about, and, and you may have another name you want to throw at us, but but Smoke Monday, when I, when I looked at 6'3", runs in the four fives, uh, obviously is a hitter, he's got a motor, uh, did start for a couple of years, obviously at one of the better programs uh, in the SEC. I'm curious about him, but I just don't think that he's got instincts. I don't know if he reads the, the plays well. I'm just not so sure how high people are going to look at him, but the traits are going to make them interested, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think you hit it on the head that time. Sometimes uh, Smoke, his instincts would get him in trouble sometimes. You know, sometimes he wanted to come try to get the pick or try to come up and, and on play action pass and he would get beat deep. So I think his cover skills he's got to work on uh, with that. He is a hitter. I mean, he's no question he's a hitter. Uh, he comes up, he, he's that prototypical, hard-nosed safety guy, but at this day and age, he's going to hone in his, his skills in the cover game uh, and seeing ball on deep balls, uh, but I think he certainly has that ability. Um, I see him as a guy that can come in, be a really solid special team, and work his way into being that safety, that reserve safety type guy. Um, you know, like I said, you, you, you can't put a premium on guys that can tackle an open open space. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, today's day and age, you, you really... You can't have the headhunters anymore. I mean, it's a 15-yard penalty, and, and that's one thing he's got to be able to, to hone in. He had some of those late in the year last year that was costly. And so, you know, just being disciplined in your tackling ability. But no question about it, he has got that, he's got that open field tackle ability. He's just got to work on his pass skills. Well, he also has a heck of a name stand. So if he gets to an NFL team, oh, boy, yeah. they're going to have a ball <laughs> with that. Smoke Monday? Oh, man, the puns are just rolling off my tongue right now in terms of – what we could utilize. Stan, Paul had brought up that there were a few other guys, and most of them are projected to be undrafted free agents, but is there anybody else that jumps out to you from covering Auburn? Is it Demetrius Robertson, the grad transfer from Georgia at wide receiver, one of the offensive linemen that perhaps could get into a camp with a team and make some noise at the next level? 
You know, I think the, the biggest thing I think is on the defensive side, you got a lot of guys that are utilizing that super senior year from COVID to come back on the offensive line. Uh, so I think a guy like a Chandler Wooten, who, was a, who, used, who, who actually sat out and came back last year for his last year, he's a guy that I think can make a roster. Uh, another linebacker type, a little bit bigger than Jacoby, uh, and, and he can play in space. So I think he'll have a chance to make it. Uh, like you talked to Demetrius Robertson, he's got speed now. There's no doubt about that. Yep. He has the speed to be able to play in the NFL. The biggest thing with him is, 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 is his physicality. Uh, he's not a really big type wide receiver, and, and, and he, you know, he had a couple of drops here and there, but he, he no question can take the top off of a defense. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. He'll get picked up somewhere. You, you got when you got that kind of speed, you're going to get a chance. There's no doubt about it. You just got to take advantage of it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. But no, no doubt, I think the defensive side for Auburn uh, this year is going to be the first couple or three guys taken. And that would make sense given the fact that those guys certainly have appealing resumes. He is Stan White, Auburn radio analyst, former Giants quarterback. Stan, can't thank you enough. We. Greatly appreciate the time of the inside, and we look forward to talking down the road. Always good to speak to you, Stan. Hey, absolutely. One other thing, guys. I want to congratulate you. We got Ike Hilliard, former first-round draft pick for the Giants back in the late 90s, back at Auburn now. He's a wide receiver coach. That was a huge pickup for Coach Harson and that staff. So that is, Stan. flavor on the coaching staff. I'm with you, man. Ike Hilliard, pound for pound, one of the toughest guys I ever covered. Yeah, I'm, I, I tell you what, I, when I read his name, there's not a whole lot of Giants guys, you know, that back at Auburn. So I was like, man, former Giant player, I got a connection there. So that was awesome. He's going to do a great job with his wide receivers. He's got the pedigree. He's obviously got the experience in playing in big games, national championships. He has NFL experience. So that'll be huge for that uh, for that playroom and that wide receiver room. Yeah, I think so. I, I didn't know he had landed down there, Stan, but I could tell you from watching him over the years and, and seeing him all the time coming back here to the Giants Stadium, uh, always had tremendous respect for Ike. So that's great. Good, good luck to you. Thanks, Stan. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Anytime, guys. Take care. You got it. Stan White with us here, breaking down the Auburn prospects. Ike Hilliard, former Giants wide receiver, was with the Steelers the last two seasons, 2020-2021. He coached that position, so now he heads back to the college ranks at Auburn. So that is certainly something to watch and monitor. It is a very small world in the football community, and I think that's another latest example of that even. Our very own guest that we just had, Stan White, connected to the Giants organization. So you never know who you can get on this program breaking down college prospects as we'll be shortly turning our attention to Baylor. That'll be the other school that will be breaking down. And as Stan laid out, he says, obviously, the focus, Paul, is going to be on the defensive side of the ball for this Auburn class. I mean, clearly, the majority of our questions were on two defensive backs and a linebacker. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's where, obviously... They're going to make their name in this 2022 class. I think Roger McCreary is interesting, but as you brought up, I think it depends on what plan do you have for him. Do you plan to bring him in and utilize him as an inside guy, or do you want to test the waters with him off the boundary to start? I think with any of those three guys, scheme is going to be a major factor as to how you look at them and how highly you rate them. And with that being said, we now turn our attention to our second school on the schedule here on Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. And we move to the Big 12. And we're going to turn our attention to Baylor. And to break down the Bears, we're now joined by their radio play-by-play announcer, John Morris. John, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dettino here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. 
Greatly appreciate the time this afternoon. Hope all is well. How are things on your end? Things going great here. It's great to be on with you guys. I'm glad, uh, you know, I'm glad we've got some prospects coming out of Baylor that uh, give you guys the reason to call me. So uh, it's been a great year. It's been a great run here at Baylor. And I think we do have some really good prospects heading into this year's draft. Absolutely. And speaking of great prospects, let's start with the safety, Jalen Petrie, who clearly had an extremely impressive campaign. You could really argue, John, the last two seasons he's made quite the name for himself. Now, from what I understand, he played a star position, was a hybrid player within Baylor's defense. So how did they utilize him, and how much do you think that versatility that he showcased can now translate to the NFL level? Yeah, Paul, that's right. And and you would really know more about that than I would. But I'll tell you what, I would hate to think where we would have been the last few years without Jalen Petrie. He was so versatile. He, uh, you know, could be, you know, he could be a linebacker. He could be a rush end. He could drop back as the safety. And in this league, in the Big 12, that is so valuable. And I guess it would be anywhere. But, you know, if you need to drop back into pass coverage, he could do it. So he was the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, which is saying a lot this past year. Um, But just a really, really uh, quality person. Uh, versatile player that I think that would translate pretty well to the next level. Now, there are times, John, where that versatility can work against a player because he's been used in so many different ways coming out of school, and then the pro coordinator isn't sure which one he wants to use him at and maybe which one he's best at because he didn't focus on just one set of responsibilities. How do you see this playing out for him? Yeah, that's a good thought. Um, I, not, I really don't look at that way. Obviously, from the college level, it's going to be different. The versatility is a plus, and there's no question mark associated with that. But I could see how, you know, in the pros, maybe he would need to focus on one position and maybe just grow in that one position, which I think he could. You know, however they look at him best, whether it's as a safety or as a, uh, you know, as a linebacker, he could put on weight, you know, I think and carry more weight and still be very effective there. So I think whatever they ask him to do, if it is to focus on one position, I think Jalen could absolutely do it. Yeah, I've seen some commentary about maybe needing to put on some more meat and potatoes if he does transition, to your point, John, another position. The other thing that I think is appealing about his production at the collegiate level is opportunistic plays. He had two pick sixes in 2020. Seems to have a real knack for being around the football and then transferring that to maybe points. What jumps out to you about that, and why was he perhaps opportunistic more often than not, John? I think just a great football sense, you know, about him. There are just some guys that have a, uh, a knack and a nose for the football, and Jalen is one of those guys. You know, if there's a big play on the field, he is either right in the middle of it or, you know, assisting somebody else with it. So uh, he, he's just got that sense that will lead him to be around the football and make big plays, and a lot of times that does turn into points uh, scored by him on the defense. I'd like to go to your other safety, John, J.T. Woods, who has better measurables or at least maybe more attractive measurables from somebody looking from afar. How do you compare these two players? I know Woods is more of a traditional safety, but in terms of what they could bring to the next level. 
Well, uh, and again, you guys would know more about that than I would, but just watching him here at Baylor, uh, JT had a spectacular uh, career in, in senior season especially. Uh, today is our pro day here at Baylor, so we'll get to see him here in just a little bit. They're going through some weight work now, and then they'll be in our indoor practice facility. And I look forward to watching him today go through these drills. But as such, I was uh, going through and pulling some highlights from this past season, and I was really stunned by how easy it was to find JT Woods highlights. <laughs> you know, there were so many of them and uh, so many big plays that he contributed to. He's got uh, great speed. That's, that's an ongoing conversation here at Baylor, or was this whole season, uh, as to who's the fastest on this team. <laughs> and those guys, you know, they don't want to give that, that title away to anybody. But JT Woods was right in the middle of that right in the mix for that. And, again, more of a true safety than uh, than Jalen Petrie would be, at least the way he was used here at Baylor. So, uh, again, a really quality guy. And I think his, his skill set, I think, really will translate well into the NFL. We're talking with John Morris, Baylor radio play-by-play announcer, breaking down the Bears' prospects as we look ahead to the 2022 NFL draft. I want to stay on the defensive side of the ball, linebacker Terrell Bernard, who, from what I understand, John, had to move from Will to Mike linebacker because of some injuries that Baylor dealt with over the course of his tenure. So I guess my question mark is, where was he most effective from your time covering him in terms of the outside, the inside, and where do you see his maybe best fit on the NFL level? I think he did here very well at both of those, either at Will or at Mike. I think maybe his future is more as a Will linebacker. Uh, and, again, he's a guy that's very versatile also. I mean, he's, he's a true linebacker, no question about that. Not so much the hybrid that Jalen Petrie is, but more of a true linebacker. But he can drop back in pass coverage if he needs to. He's got a little more uh, bulk to him than, than Jalen Petrie does already. And, uh, again, just a nose for the football, always in on big plays, timing his, his blitzes, uh, you know, at the collegiate level. You know, give our defensive coaches and defensive coordinators credit for that also. But Terrell Bernard just timing those uh, to be a part of some really big plays defensively here at Baylor. But to answer your question, I would say more at the will linebacker. Uh, just because I think he's got, uh, you know, he can run sideline to sideline. I think he's got a little more freedom over there on the outside to do that. I think just looking at the Sugar Bowl is all you need to know about him, right, John? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I put that tape in and watch Terrell Bernard in that game. But, you know, I, I did also, through the research, I saw foot, shoulder, and knee injuries as, uh, you know, um, Lance uh, alluded to just a couple of moments ago, and I, and I wonder from your perspective, did those injuries hamper him at all? Do you think it detracted from anything he was able to do, or was he able to fully overcome them to the point where scouts and NFL teams will say, you know what, it's not that much of an issue? You know, that's a very fair question, and I'm sure that he's going to be looked at and measured, you know, and diagnosed up one side and down the other. Uh, The shoulder injury was the most serious that he had during his time at Baylor. It came uh, about halfway through his junior season, and I tell you, it it nearly crushed us when you lost a guy like Terrell Bernard, uh, you know, for the last half of the season. Didn't, you know, didn't completely uh, neuter Baylor defensively, but it was a big loss when he went out. 
but then to watch him come back, to watch the way he worked, and he didn't go through spring practice the senior before the, the spring before his senior year, just to make sure it was 100% healthy. And I think they played it exactly right when the season started. He was 100% healthy, and there were no issues his senior season. So uh, it was a you know it was a pretty significant shoulder injury, but he worked hard, came back from that, and uh, and had an outstanding senior senior year with no repercussions at all. John, earlier you were talking about how there's a bit of a competition on the defensive side of the ball in terms of who the fastest right. guy is. Well, if you look at the offensive side of the ball, I think Tyquan Thornton certainly makes a very strong case <laughs> based on what he's been able to put down on film. The one word, John, that comes to my mind every time I've seen clips of him and what he's been able to do is this guy is slippery. It doesn't matter yeah. whether there's two guys. I mean, he finds the hole, he slips through him, and then he's off to the races what is it about his elusiveness that makes him so appealing? And I'm not sure if you've been looking at some mock drafts, but I'm a little bit surprised that he's not being projected to go as high as perhaps his slipperiness and speed is showcased. Yeah, no, I haven't seen that. Uh, it's a little surprising to hear that because, again, on the offensive side, that's a guy that made some huge plays for us this year. Big play receiver, uh, tall guy, great speed, obviously, you saw what he did in the combine, and he's one of those that's in the conversation of, you know, who is the fastest guy on this Baylor Baylor team from last year. But he does have a real knack for, uh, you know, for making a grab and yards after the catch are really big uh, for him. So, uh, yeah, good size. I think his skills uh, and his body build translate really well to the NFL. What What do you think his measurables? are John because I've seen a number of different measurables in terms of his weight and his height what's he going to play at when he gets to this league because I I agree with Lance he's very wiry and I'm a bit concerned about his durability at at the height that he's at he's going to take some punishment up here yeah I I can see that uh he can put on weight and I don't know how that works I mean how does that work when you go from college to the NFL uh, and you look at somebody's frame and you say, you know, he could handle 20 pounds more easily. Uh, but does that, you know, does that affect his speed at sure. all? Does it affect yep. his uh, mobility? So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he is a little bit slight, but he had no, if, I, if I'm remembering this right, I don't think he had any serious injuries during his time here at Baylor at all. So, he was able to handle that really, really well. Well, they couldn't uh, catch him, John. Looked... That's the problem. They couldn't catch him. <laughs> couldn't catch him, right. Yeah. Couldn't get a good lick on him. That's exactly <laughs> right. So that's the answer. You know, if you're not uh, if you're not real big, uh, you just don't let anybody get a good shot on you. And maybe that's the secret for uh, Tyquan Thornton. John, I think the other individual on offense that could get some notice when it comes to the draft is running back Abram Smith, who – didn't really get a lot of play in his first few seasons. Then all of a sudden, he gets 257 carries this past year. But I think the biggest question for him is, can he be an inside-outside guy, in your opinion, at the NFL level? And what about pass protection when it came to passing situations? How reliable can he be in that department? Well, he's a great story also. Uh, came in as a running back. Uh, we had a need for him at linebacker, and he moved to linebacker and played really well at that position. And then uh, then we had a need at running back. You know, we were just sort of thin at the running back position. Coach Dave Aranda came to him and said, what do you think about moving back to running back? 
and it was a complete mindset change for Abram Smith. But he said, yeah, Coach, I'll do it. And uh, lo and behold, he has the school record, uh, rushing season record, his senior season. Uh, like you said, over 250 carries this year. He was just a, you know, he's a. We we referred to him as an Abram tank the way he ran, <laughs> and uh, he, he's obviously really good between the tackles, really strong there. And Baylor switched to a wide zone offense under offensive coordinator Jeff Grimes this year. And there were occasions when he'd go outside as well and be very effective. I'm thinking of a, a run against Texas where he had a spin and ran it like, uh, I want to say, 30 yards for a touchdown. Um, so I think he can do the inside and the outside, whatever is asked of him. But, man, was he productive here at Baylor. That's going to be one of the biggest positions for Baylor to have to fill moving forward, losing Abram Smith and also Treston Ebner, our top two running backs from last year. I'm glad you just mentioned Ebner, John, because before we had this conversation with you today, I did call an independent scout, and I said, look, I know some of the obvious guys we're going to want to talk to John about with Baylor, but is there somebody like under the radar that just just smells like they could be somebody people are going to want to look at? And he mentioned to me Ebner, and then he mentioned uh, Kalon Barnes also. Because yeah, of the yeah. blazing speed that both of these guys bring to the table and some of the production that they had. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some warts on both of those guys' resumes, according to, to my scout. But he said there's enough there that's going to titillate some people to want to take a look at both of them. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I think they sure deserve it. You know, what we've seen from them, Treston Ebner, uh, a guy that was here and was very productive his entire career. Uh, he did, uh, you know, share the time with Abram Smith in his senior season. But both of those guys were just a really good one-two punch for Baylor. And I hope Treskin gets a shot. I, I'd be surprised if he doesn't. And then Caleb Barnes is another one of those guys that's in the uh, conversation of who's the fastest on this Baylor team. Uh, there are times when, when you watch Kalen, maybe after a pick or a, uh, you know, a scoop and score, that you think he's got to be the fastest. There's no way anybody is faster than Boogie Barnes. So uh, both those guys have, have uh, really, I think, uh, hopefully shown enough that they'll get a shot in somebody's hands. Yeah, he had quite the 40-yard dash at the Combine, so yeah. that certainly supports what you're saying. As That is a look and a breakdown of the Baylor Bears prospects. John Morris joining us here, the Baylor radio play-by-play announcer. John, greatly appreciate the time and the insight, and we look forward to talking down the road. Thanks, Thanks again. John. Be well. Yeah. Guys, I appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation, and uh, appreciate you having me on. You got it. Our pleasure. Some great insight and info out of John Morris on what to expect from this Baylor class. One of the classes that clearly has a lot of substance in stock compared to these other schools. There's kind of an interesting draft season where most of the powerhouses, you know, maybe they only have three or four prospects as opposed to previous years where sometimes, you know, you could see seven or eight guys come out of these schools. But Baylor has the volume as we were just going over with John. Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. A reminder, Giants fans, you can secure your season tickets for the 2022 season today for only $100. Limited seats are available. Speak with a Giants ticket representative now. Become a season ticket member by calling 888-NYG-1925. So we'll try to open up the phone lines here as we make our way through the remainder of the show at 201-939-4513. And we check in 
with Phil in North Carolina. Phil, welcome to the program. What do you got for us? Yeah, hi, guys. Um, good to hear you. Um, I just wanted to point out, I kill you. What, that uh, brought a lot of smiles to my face when I heard his name. And just a, that's the type of giant I like, you know, a lot of heart and uh, played heart. So the best to him. But, um, but what I wanted to talk about was uh, Paul's favorite subject of positional value. And I find it, you know, I think there's no absolutes, but my take is that because of the premium, certain the price of premium positions in the free agency market, that you have to incorporate a component of positional value in your draft strategy. You know, when you're talking about the, if you just look at the listing of the high threes uh, for various positions, you can't you can't afford a get top of line defensive end, but you could afford certain running backs or certain other positions. Uh, and, you know, Ernie, Ernie Corsi was a big believer in positional value. So I find it hard to discount it, but um, I, I understand the point that you can't, if someone's a superstar in another position, you can't discount it because he doesn't have a premium position. But it's got to be a factor when you're building a team in the, in the cap in the cap age, and I'm just curious, uh, you know, how do you reconcile that? I concur. It's Everything's got to be a factor. In in today's game, there are multiple factors that have to be thrown into the hopper, so to speak, before you spit out an answer. My point is that there are people who view positional value as if it's a page out of the Bible, and God forbid you should draft – uh, one of the non-positional value targets too high because they'll have a conniption. That's that's my problem. There are, there are too many people now who don't understand the game well enough or the other components of the game who hear positional value. It's the jargon now that's floating around amongst NFL media people. And then you get folks who don't truly understand that it's only one of the components, like analytics. It's one of the components that you can use to make your meatloaf. But if you're going to disqualify players by saying positional value, ah, I absolutely no way can I take a guard in the top five. No way can I take a safety in the top five. I'm not going to do it. Positional value rules. Anybody who does that gets immediately dismissed by me because there have to be more components to the equation. That's where I draw the line and I get I get really ticked off because there are too many shallow people who have just one train of thought and don't understand that there are multiple angles to the prism in everything about professional football. That's why I love it so much because I dig into every angle of the prism and I recognize that. The smartest people in this world are the ones who know what they don't know. Remember that. Well, Quentin Nelson, for example, is a good player to turn to with respect to those who say, well, you don't take a guard that high, and clearly the Colts, I don't think, are regretting that pick from a few years ago, considering what he's been able to achieve. The other thing with positional value is positional value could fluctuate depending on a team's needs. So how the Giants look at positional value is very different than how the Houston Texans look at positional value, because it's also based on what you already have on your roster. And maybe you bump up that position one year because you say, hey, you know, there's a really good prospect at that position, and we think he can be a Pro Bowl, All-Pro-esque player. So this year it warrants us utilizing a top-ten pick on that play. I don't think there's one rule of thumb 
which is what Paul is talking about. I think it's one area of the equation, but there's a lot of different factors. So I don't get too caught up in positional value because every so often there's a guy that runs counter to that philosophy who is an unbelievable guard, who is a versatile safety where you could be justified to utilize a top 10 pick on them. And if you get caught up in, well, over the last 15 years, we get one of these guys at this position on the free agent market or off the practice squad, and that prevents you from taking that player, that's when all of a sudden you miss out on a game changer. So I think you got to be careful with having one rule of thumb to go by. But I also think it fluctuates a bit based on a team's need. See, Carlo, you've got Lance and I agreeing. This is wonderful, right? Isn't, well, this, I mean, isn't this great? But I, don't, but I don't. I don't think that positional value is anything that one executive would even turn to, Paul, and they would say, you know, I always eliminate guards. Oh, no, no. in this category because of so and so. Real football people will never look at it that way. Yeah. But but there is a common perception out there amongst some groups that do look at it that way, and those are the people that are sadly mistaken. But I'll tell you one thing. I will put a little asterisk on this for, for our caller. I would really, really have a tough time taking a kicker or a punter in the first round. Sure. Track. Well, I mean, but that's the extreme. No, that's the extreme, Paul. And There's I your positional yes. value. Paul. And I don't think any of us were going to that depth. No, I think that's why – the positions we were bringing up is, I think, guard is one of those gray area positions because people say, oh, you know, you can find a guard in the later rounds. But then, again, you could also find a Quentin Nelson. And then a safety, maybe it's a safety who is a jack-of-all-trades type of player, and you could fit in a corner. You could fit in wow. at safety. You could play near the line of scrimmage. You could play deep. Well, you know, that means you could utilize the guy in four different positions. I, I just I'll think. give you another great example, right? Defensive tackle. How many people would flat out stamp on the top of a table saying there's no way in hell I'm going to take a defensive tackle in the top three or the top five picks because positional value says no? Well, how do you think the Rams feel about Aaron Donald? In retrospect, would they have taken him maybe number one in the draft that year if they could have gotten that pick? Something tells me a few other teams would have yeah, taken exactly. him before he got to the Rams. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that's why people need to understand it belongs in context. It should not be the overruling prophecy, which is unfortunately what a lot of people are trying to float out there these days. It's, it's a lazy way to think. All right, okay, Phil. I yeah. agree. You Thank got you. It. Appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much. Scott is in Grand Rapids, and he joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Scott? Hey, what's happening, guys? Nice Hi. to talk to you again. Uh, yeah, just talk a little bit. You know, obviously draft time, right? Uh, great to have the Baylor guy on. Although my wife called right as they were talking about the Jalen prospect, and it's like I do a lot of that PFF, and uh, he's often there on the board, and I select him at two typically if I if I have an additional pick, but. Kind of wanted to get your take on a couple of, uh, you know, made-up scenarios. Kind of if you were the GM, where would you go? Uh, I, I was doing one of these drafts. Obviously, it's all fictional, right? I don't put too much stock in it. But uh, you had Hutchinson, Thibodeau, uh, Hamilton, and Sauce go off the board, right? Leaves, leaves us at five in a peak position. There's, there's three of the best tackles still left. No matter what you do, you kind of can't, can't lose at seven. Uh, I ended up trading back, I think, to the Saints. Took their first next year, first this year, and second this year. And with that value, I was able to get, I think it was Neil or Icky at seven. And then at 18, I believe it is, with the Saints, I got Tyler Lindebaum. And then with my two seconds, I got the Jalen Prospects. I wanted to, you know, I appreciate the deep dive on him today. 
and then Kenyon Green. I mean, how crazy would that be? I mean, it's kind of crazy that you go three offensive positions, but three of the best at their position with where you are in the draft. I mean, does that seem like a slam dunk to you guys, or is that too heavy O-line? Well, what did you do in terms of pass rush? Uh, I think with the, the other, in the third, I got Boye was gone. I think it was Nick. Nick Nico Batito or something like that. I, I picked up with the with the third. Mm, so you, that would be hard for me to do. Now here, here's what I will out. say. Here's what I would say. Depending upon who's on the board at the time the Giants pick, probably at seven. I I'm pretty much married to. Uh, it's going to be more than a Godfather offer for me to deal out of five. Let me make that clear to you. I'm taking that fifth pick because there's no way you're going to tell me that the Giants don't have conviction in what they believe is a premium player at five. I would find that extremely hard to believe. So I've got to put that guy in my pocket because to them, I have to believe they think there's a sure thing there. Now, if you you want to deal seven, again, I would take a godfather offer for seven. At least I would listen to the phone call. So that's my yeah. take on your ability to make a trade there. I was thinking the five is so much more valuable. Obviously, I mean, it's two well, positions. Sure it is. But if you look at, at Carolina sitting there, nobody knows if they like Malik. I mean, all the everyone, no one loved the quarterback. Just like like the year when we drafted Daniel Jones. No one loved the quarterback, and then they get overdrafted. It happens <laughs> they always year. do, sure. So, you know, exactly. So the one guy that everyone's kind of fantasizing about is the, you know, the Malik, Malik Willis kid or whatever. And I mean, with the Seahawks, right there, or maybe you do a micro deal, right? Maybe it's it's trading from from five to nine. You get a second this year, a second next year. It's not a huge move. And if the three tackles are there, you, you just to your point, Paul, you're telling me that the Giants don't have conviction in any one of those guys. They have to, or possibly, you know, they have to, right? So to even if two of them went off the board, I have enough conviction saying I know three of these guys are that dang good to take, and I don't mind losing it because guess what? The capital I'm getting. Is, is worth the, the, the little mini trade. Uh, obviously, you'd have to talk first-rounders if, if you're moving back five, seven, ten uh, spots. But yeah. I just thought, you know, yeah, what do you think, Lance? I mean, are you, are you in a position where you're dead set no matter what? Uh, short of, I mean, the, the fictional King's Ransom, three first-rounders kind of thing, that's not going to happen. But before, but Lance answers, re- before Lance answers, though, let me just say to you, I'm a big Kenyon Green guy. I, I've watched mm-hmm. Texas A&M a, a few times this year. I really like Kenyon Green a lot. He's another oh, one of those. He's a mauler. He's a mauler. A yeah, very strong, mad. physical. He's a man. <laughs> all right? That guy mauls people. So I love the fact that you put him on your board. Yeah. With respect to. Zion Johnson always seems to be gone. But I think even if they were both there, I just like Kenyon Green's, just like he said, that mauling, dirty. Like, I picture, like, someone could break two of his fingers during a game and he wouldn't even care. He'd just stay there and block because that's that's that nasty, dirty, you-can't-take-me-off-the-field grit attitude that the Giants need in an offensive line, to be honest. When the Herds in Texas see Kenyon Green, they run the other way. That's all you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, I think, you know, going back to the fact that you didn't address the pass rusher until later on in the draft, I still think you'd have an opportunity to get a – really good player if you stay at five and seven. So, you know, that's yeah. the other thing you have to wait, considering that was an area of an issue 
for the Giants last season in terms of getting after the quarterback. And we've talked about Don Martindale. You know, he's an aggressive guy, okay? He wants to get after the quarterback. They had, you know, a high sack percentage, high blitz percentage in terms of if you look at how he utilized his personnel in Baltimore. So he could utilize a big guy. If a big guy like that is still on the board, I'd be a little bit hesitant in moving out of that position because it's a big need, and I think you get good value there. But if you're talking about five to nine, I don't think that's a huge jump, but you're – hypothetical was also if three tackles are still there then you know you figure the Giants would have some conviction but they also could have a differential between those three tackles where maybe one of the guys is above and beyond the other two which means then you're settling if you give up the pick so I'd have to know what the conversation is like in the room but I would have no problem moving five to nine because I don't think that's as big of a major jump as you mentioned Okay, so so if I instead of drafting the center, I just like Tyler Lindebaum so much. So if if we say didn't draft him and went either defensive interior, defensive edge, you know Jermaine Johnson, a Walker, uh, you know uh, the big boy inside guy, I forget his name, but the monster guy, Davis. Uh, yeah, Davis. You know if one of those guys are there, say you don't go O line, O line, O line, right? Say you get uh, an Evan Neal or an Icky, and then you get a Kenyon Green in the top of the second with that mid-round that you traded out of, if you got your edge or your defensive interior there, would you be a happy man with that value? Well, if you get Jermaine Johnson in that spot, <laughs> I would live with that. Yeah, I think so, too. Yes. It, yeah. But if you don't get I'm Jermaine rapid. Johnson, because Jermaine Johnson, I think, is a really good game-changing player. But if you don't get Jermaine, you know, then I think it changes the conversation. Remember, while I still think center is important, and we'll let you go on that note, Scott, appreciate the phone call, I don't know necessarily, based on what they have already and their movement to John Feliciano at center, if the huge necessity is to get that additional pick so you can draft a center. I guess that's what I'm saying. I'd rather have, Paul, the pass rusher than the center if I were to wait two based on the value and the amount of picks. I, and I, I understand that, Lance. Although, I, I, again, I want to make it clear, and I, if I haven't said this before on the program, I'm a tad concerned about Linderbaum being undersized. I know the Giants have done well with undersized centers in the past. Bart Oates and Sean O'Hara immediately come to mind as guys who made Pro Bowls and won Super Bowls as being slightly undersized centers. But there are challenges that an undersized center has to overcome when in today's game, okay, you have a lot of these big, strong, nasty defensive tackles, okay, who are going to have an advantage, a physical size advantage on you from the get-go. And if, if you're not able to overcome that disadvantage with all of your other traits, it means there are certain matchups you're going to have trouble with. That's just the nature of the beast. And so I'm not as sold on, you know, people are talking about Linderbaum like he's Jim Otto. And I think you know who I'm talking about, Lance. Yep. All right. Mike Webster, for maybe some younger folks who don't know who Jim Otto is. I mean, you know, he's not a Hall of Fame center to me, like right coming out of the box. I'm sorry. I just don't see it. Well, with that being said. Let's hold on a second. So Paul says, for young people, how about Mike Webster? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we're he not played, going played, that he young. He played with the Steelers. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I understand, but like the great Steel Curtain team. He was on that. He was on those Super Bowl well, teams. Do, are young people familiar with the '70s Steelers? I'd like to believe you they don't. have. I'd like to think they have a little <laughs> sense speak, of history. Well, it depends on how young, young you're going to go. If you're talking yes. about somebody who's Pearson. in their teens and their twenties, they have no idea who Mike. Thank you, Lance. They have absolutely no idea who Mike. I am 27 years old. I don't know who Mike. Yeah, I was going to say no. Twenties and teens, Paul. Can you pick someone that played in the 2000s, please? They, they, oh. Listen, it's hard enough for people in their 30s Jeez. to know Mike Webster. All right. So, Mike Webster's before whatever. my time. Yeah, the bottom line is, no, Lick, I mean, I know Lick who Mike Webster is in any of these guys. Well, because unfortunately, Mike Webster took his life, so that's why I know his story. It's a, a very sad story. I'm glad story, that you know his story, Lance. Yes. Good for you. No, but I'm saying I just don't think 20s and teens have any idea who he is, unfortunately. Advice though, to all you young yes. folks out there listening on your little iPads and your apples and your phones and everything. Go research Mike Webster. That's fine. How about pick a player that's played in the last 20 years? Nobody's as good as those guys. Well, that's fine. Just pick one of the best centers <laughs> for the last 20 years. My gosh. Anyway, go ahead. Kill me. Close right. the show, Lance. Sign, yes. sign us out. That'll wrap things up for Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll be up and running again Thursday at noon Eastern. Today's episode, Big Blue Kickoff Live. It's part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest, and we'll speak to you on Thursday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.